I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore American history and thought leadership through conversations with leading authors. Today, I'm interviewing two-time Pulitzer finalist H.W. Brands, author of the new book, The Zealot and the Emancipator, John Brown, Abraham Lincoln, and the Struggle for American Freedom, which came out on October 6, 2020. And we did the virtual interview as a program for the St. Louis County Library on October the 11th. Enjoy. My name's Talmadge Boston. I'm a lawyer in Dallas. That's my vocation, but my avocation is I write history and I do onstage interviews with leading historians, and that's why I'm here today. And our special guest is H.W. Brands, who is uh, the, the Mac Brown Professor of History at the University of Texas. He is a two-time Pulitzer finalist, and most recently, uh, his wonderful new book, The Zealot and the Emancipator, and the struggle for American freedom uh, came out on October 6th and uh, has been widely reviewed. And so today, H.W. Uh, Brands, who goes by another name, Bill, and I'll call him Bill, uh, will be our special guest. So, Bill, let's start off with uh, the inspiration uh, for this wonderful book. What clicked in your mind to align John Brown with Abraham Lincoln, put the two of them into a book? and compare their goals and contrast their efforts to eliminate slavery. Okay. First, nice to, talk, nice to see you again, Talmadge. And I'd like to thank St. Louis County Public Library for the opportunity to address their audience. I've had a number of very pleasurable and valuable experiences there before. I wish I was with them all in person. This is the best we can do, and so we'll make do. But I'm delighted to be reconnected with the St. Louis County Public Library. So why John Brown and Abraham Lincoln? Well, this because... I wanted to grapple with, for myself and for our readers, with the fundamental question that split the United States in the middle of the 19th century. And the question was slavery. It was one that had been around for, well, since it had been around in a very divisive way since the late 18th century for half a century. And it was really clear that the division between the slave states and the free states, between North and South, was growing deeper. And I had written about the subject, but I've written sort of around the subject. So I'd written on Andrew Jackson, and Andrew Jackson came up against part of this issue. So slavery is at the heart of the issue, but also, and equally portentous in constitutional terms, is the question, what's the relations between the slave states and the free states? Excuse me, I'm sorry, between the states and the federal government. And so this is one do the states, I mean, ultimately, do the states have a right to leave the union? And these are con this was a constitutional question. And on top of that was the political, moral question of slavery. So I wanted to get at that. I'd written about Andrew Jackson. I wrote about Henry Clay, Daniel Webster, and John Calhoun. And during their lifetimes, or just more precisely, during their professional careers, during their public lives, from 1810 to about 1850, slavery emerged from one issue among many to the issue that was right on the front of everybody's burner. And, but they die. So that book called Heirs of the Founders ended in the early 1850s. And that's when the, the three protagonists die. And I'd written about Ulysses Grant. I wrote a book about Ulysses Grant. And Grant didn't deal with it directly, except by the time he gets into the Civil War. 
And then he deals with reconstruction. So I had sort of a hole in the stuff that I had written about. And I wanted to tackle it directly. I had thought everybody who writes American history thinks about writing biography of Abraham Lincoln. And everybody thinks about it, and half of them actually do. And so there were more biographies of Lincoln than I needed. The other thing was that I wanted to, if, if you write a biography of Lincoln, you have to deal with all the other stuff that Lincoln had to deal with. Otherwise, it's not a reasonable biography. But I wanted to zero in on slavery. And so I wanted to match Lincoln with somebody else who grappled with this. And perhaps the most arresting figure in American history during this time is John Brown. And arresting in um, a rather understated way before 1859, but after his execution in 1859, then he is this public figure sort of hovering over everything. And as you allude, both men, Lincoln and Brown, were devoutly opposed to slavery. So they had the same goal. We must rid our republic of slavery. But they were diametrically opposed on the tactics that they could employ. Not only does he appeal to people after his death, but actually during his life, he appealed to some pretty heavy hitters. Uh, You mentioned Thoreau, Emerson, and Henry Ward Beecher, uh, to name a few. Did these luminaries understand that Brown's intentions were to kill when necessary in order to free the slaves? Now, they knew him before he went to Kansas, and Kansas was basically a test battleground for the Civil War. It was a federal territory that had been open to settlement. And under the Kansas-Nebraska Act, it would be open to pro-slavery settlers who could bring their slaves with them, and it would be open to anti-slavery settlers. And the idea was that the settlers would come, and when the territory filled up sufficiently to warrant a state government and constitution, whoever was there would write the constitution, and the constitution would allow slavery or it would forbid slavery. Well, this being the case, the two sides were in competition to fill Kansas up with their partisans. And John Brown went there to oppose slavery and to try to scare off pro-slavery settlers who had come. And in the process, he and his adult sons, he had several adult sons and some other people who followed him, committed a brutal act of cold-blooded murder of five pro-slavery settlers who had done nothing to John Brown and you know, weren't doing anything, were no threat to them at the moment. It was a political statement that he was making, that this territory is not going to be safe for pro-slavery settlers. Now, for that, he was wanted for murder. And so the authorities in Kansas put out wanted posters and the dragnet was out for John Brown. But in those days, there was no convenient photography. So nobody had a picture of John Brown. There was a description, but it could have been almost anybody. He changed his appearance. He grew a long beard. He changed his name. He went under various aliases. And so he wandered around and he he went back east to get more money to support his abolitionist activities. And some of the people that he talked, these these were wealthy philanthropists who happened to be abolitionists. And they made a point of not asking him directly, did you really do what you have been accused of doing? They didn't want to know. And they were Well, they found John Brown the more intriguing because maybe he had done that. And so here was a man who was really serious about 
abolitionism in a way that the armchair abolitionists of New England weren't. They would give money to these good causes, but did they put their lives on the line like John Brown? No, not at all. Well, for another heavy hitter who had uh, direct contact with John Brown was Frederick Douglass. And Douglass, uh, in some ways, definitely admired Brown, but he absolutely rejected uh, Brown's violent intentions and acts. But then later, long after Brown's death and many years after the Civil War, Douglass paid tribute to Brown in a speech that you weave into your final chapter and uh, pays tribute. So talk about the transformation and Frederick Douglass in his feelings toward Brown. Did he ultimately decide that the idea of killing others in order to affect emancipation was morally acceptable? Abraham Lincoln and John Brown never met, but Frederick Douglass knew them both, got to know them both very well. So he's the character who ties these two parts of my story together. And he knew what John Brown was up to before it actually happened, in particular, the raid on Harper's Ferry that made John Brown famous or infamous. And just before launching that raid, John Brown pleaded with Frederick Douglass to join the operation because Frederick Douglass himself, an escaped slave, and this very articulate and powerful spokesman for abolitionism would have lent enormous credibility because what Brown was trying to do was to persuade slaves in the area of Harper's Ferry to take the weapons that he was bringing and that he was going to steal from the federal arsenal at Harper's Ferry. He was going to arm the slaves and they would rise up against their masters and they would claim their freedom. And Frederick Douglass thought that this mission was lunacy, that there was no way on earth it was going to succeed. After John Brown was captured, tried, executed, and essentially made into a martyr by Northern abolitionists, then he became this powerful symbol for immediate abolitionism. And John Brown became valuable to Frederick Douglass almost as a stick that Douglass could use to beat Abraham Lincoln over the head. Because once the South seceded, then Douglas said to Lincoln, he said it directly to Lincoln, he said, now's the time, emancipation now. And Lincoln said, no, no, we're, the country's not ready for it. At this point, Lincoln was saying, I don't have the constitutional authority to do it. So Lincoln eventually came around and agreed with Frederick Douglass. And Frederick Douglass came to view John Brown as almost sort of John the Baptist who had to preach this new gospel of emancipation and he would die before he could carry it to fruition. Then Abraham Lincoln was the one who completed it. But it was very tempting for people like Frederick Douglass to say that without John Brown, there wouldn't have been Abraham Lincoln. I think he was wrong, but that was a position that he and many other people took. Well, let's shift the conversation now more to Lincoln. And the question is, knowing what was politically feasible in the 1850s and the pre-emancipation proclamation 1860s, do you have any problem with the way Lincoln evolved in his thinking over the years before finally moving forward with the Emancipation Proclamation and then, of course, the 13th Amendment? 
I think if Lincoln had moved any faster, emancipation would not have come. I mean, it would have come eventually, but it wouldn't have come in Lincoln's lifetime, uh, assuming he lived 1865. And this because Lincoln understood that most Americans were not abolitionists. The abolitionists were a small, noisy minority, even in the North. And furthermore, he recognized that even if he, as president, concluded that slavery was morally wrong, morally wrong and constitutionally wrong are two very different things. Furthermore, he recognized that in a democracy, you have to operate by persuasion. You don't get to just put your moral views into effect. You have to bring other people along with you. Last point, and but it's on the, the same thing. Lincoln initially launched a war against the South to prevent secession. And he said it was to preserve the Union. It was not to free the slaves. And, Lincoln, and so when South Carolina forces shelled Fort Sumter in April 1861, there's the opening shots of the Civil War. Lincoln followed that by issuing a proclamation, issuing a call for 75,000 volunteers to preserve the Union. He did not say to free the slaves. And he knew, first of all, they didn't have the constitutional authority for this, but politically he understood. If he issued a call for volunteers to free the slaves, there might've been a handful of people who showed up, but he certainly would have had what he wanted because there wasn't yet the political will, the political critical mass in favor of emancipation. Now you mentioned that Lincoln and John Brown never met, but after the raid on Harper's Ferry, and of course, uh, Brown's subsequent hanging, Lincoln was very well aware of what John Brown had done. And you say that he was dismayed by it. Expand Lincoln, upon Lincoln's reaction to John Brown. Lincoln and all good, or I should say all reasonable Republicans ran for the doors when they heard about John Brown because they understood that their new party, the Republican Party, would be blamed for John Brown. And so Lincoln went out of his way to say, I don't support John Brown. John Brown is not a Republican. If you elect me, you're not electing John Brown. He reassured not only Southerners, but he reassured Northerners because Northerners didn't want a race war. They didn't want a war to free the slaves. Now, there are a few people like Frederick Douglass who might've been willing to see such a thing, but you know, Lincoln and the vast majority of people in the North did not. Now, after the war began, and again, it was a war originally over the issue of states' rights. Can states secede? The South said yes. And the, the position of the South was, we state, any state has a right to secede over any issue whatsoever. It happens to be slavery that we're seceding over, but if we chose something else, that would be just as good. And Lincoln said, no, you can't. And it doesn't have anything to do with slavery. As late as the summer of 1862, Lincoln, in response to a query from Horace Greeley, the New York editor, said that if he, his goal was to preserve the Union. And if he could save the Union by freeing all the slaves, he'd do that. If he could save the Union by freeing none of the slaves, he'd do that. If he could save the Union by freeing half of them and leaving the other half in bondage, he would do that. His goal was to preserve the Union. There's been a lot of talk through the years and debate about the time period uh, between the time that Lincoln got elected in November 1860 and when he was inaugurated in March of 1861. 
And, and during those months, he basically made no public statements uh, at a time when the country was going nuts with seven southern states uh, seceding and, and others starting to lean in the direction of secession. So if Lincoln had been given a do-over, do you think he would have been more vocal about his thoughts on what needed to be done about what was happening during this interregnum? If Lincoln knew then how things were going to turn out, that there was going to be this horrible war in which some 700,000 Americans were going to be killed, yeah, he would have wanted to do things differently. At the time, he had, he had a reasonable rationalization for not saying anything. And it was, I don't have the authority to follow through on anything. So whatever I say really won't have any weight. It'll have to wait until I become president. But that really didn't wash. Because, oh, and he went on to say that I have said many times before the election that I don't think that the states have any right, any constitutional right to leave the union. And furthermore, that I don't propose and I don't think I have the, the power, I will have the power to tamper with slavery in the states where it exists. So in effect, if Mississippi and Virginia and Georgia want to have slavery forever, that's their business. It's not my business. It's not the business of the federal government. So he said that I said that stuff many times, but what he really didn't sufficiently reckon with, it's one thing to say something as a candidate for president. It's something else to say it as president-elect, because as a candidate, you're going to say whatever you think is going to get you elected. But once you've been elected, then... It's not a bad idea to tell the country what's going to happen after you become president, especially, especially the secession wave began at the moment he became officially president-elect. And if Lincoln had said, stated very clearly, if you secede, this means war, it probably would not have stopped South Carolina from seceding. South Carolina had been on the verge of seceding for 30 years, but it might have caused other states to be more careful. Now, as it was, some of the other states, including Virginia, the key to all of this, was more careful. And Virginia did not secede until, in fact, not simply the attack on Fort Sumter, but Lincoln's call for volunteers, because Virginia's leaders at that point knew that if Lincoln was going to send an army to fight against South Carolina. That army was going to be marching through Virginia. And Virginia wasn't going to put up with what they could see and what they could construe as this foreign army marching through. But if Lincoln had made clear, clearer, what the consequences of secession were, of armed secession, then some of the other states might have been more careful. Lincoln suspended the writ of habeas corpus he shut down some of his critics' newspapers, and of course, he issued the Emancipation Proclamation. Now, do any of these actions bother you on the basis that they violated the Constitution, or do you think, as he tried to justify at the time, what he did was in fact constitutional? Because as Commander-in-Chief, he did what was necessary as a matter of military necessity. You know, as somebody who's just looking in on history, it doesn't either bother me or not bother me. I make a point, actually, when I write about John Brown and Abraham Lincoln, not to sit in judgment on either one. And this is, this is a position that I take when I write about people in history. When I wrote about Henry Clay and Daniel Webster and John Calhoun 
And okay, this is what they did. And this because, and this is kind of an outgrowth of my teaching as well. It's more important for me that my students have the basis, the information for judging for themselves, you know, what they would have done in history. And I do pose a question to my students all the time. What would you have done if you were Abraham Lincoln? What would you have done about slavery? And so on. So I make them think about this. But for my readers, I don't want to try to make up my readers' minds for them. I want to give them as much information as they can have in this case on John Brown. Here's what John Brown did. Here's what he wrote. Here's what he thought. Here's Abraham Lincoln. This is what Lincoln did. So I let those, my two protagonists, make their case. And then I let the readers judge. Now, I do give Frederick Douglass the last word. And Frederick Douglass basically came down on the side of both of them. And he thought that John Brown was necessary for his moment. And he thought that Abraham Lincoln was necessary to carry that moment to fruition. But was Lincoln, were Lincoln's actions constitutional in suspending habeas corpus, in suppressing dissent in the press? Um, you know, until the Supreme Court says it's unconstitutional, then we can argue about it. I mean, we can still argue about it even after the Supreme Court rules. The Supreme Court, uh, well, actually, Lincoln overruled, basic himself, ignored Supreme Court rulings. His argument was this, and I have a hard time faulting this argument. And the argument was, must I uphold this one right at the risk of losing everything else. And so I think as a matter of existential and military necessity, his actions were certainly plausible. If I had been Lincoln, I probably would have done the same thing. Now you close your book describing Frederick Douglass's speech in 1881 at a small African-American college in Harper's Ferry, which of course had been the site of John Brown's raid. And there, Douglas spoke not only of Brown's and Lincoln's legacy, but he also spoke of a statue in Washington, D.C., where Lincoln was standing by a slave who had just started to rise up at the moment of emancipation. Now, ever since George Floyd's recent death, that statue has become controversial because the newly freed black slave appears to be subservient to the white president. What are your thoughts on that statue as of 2020? On statues generally, I'm inclined to leave statues as they are, with, in some cases, one slight addition. And that is, if the statue does not clearly say the year in which it was erected, then add that. And this because, in the first place, as a history teacher, I don't want to see things in public places that allow us to reflect on our history to go away. Uh, yeah, so sometimes they go into museums. Most of the time, they just go into a warehouse or junkyard somewhere. And even if, even if people in, or say especially if people in 2020 walk past that statue in Washington, and they don't like the fact that the freed slave is standing below in height Lincoln. Well, at least they will know if it shows the statue when it was, the statue was put up, I think in 1875 or 1876. They will know that 
That was what seemed appropriate at that time. Now, judgment has changed. And furthermore, if they read the inscription on the bottom of the statue, they'll realize that the statue was paid for by the African-American community in Washington. And the black people, the former slaves, were delighted with the statue. And they all came around and they celebrated this statue. And so if the statue were to be removed, then there would be no, no basis for seeing, at least in public art, changes in the evolution of attitudes. Bill, what's your next book that you're now working on? It's a book about the American Revolution. But I cast it, in fact, the working title is America's First Civil War. And it's about the struggle among Americans between the patriots and the loyalists. How did people take sides? The way I pose the question is, what prompts a man to forsake his country and take up arms against it? So this is very much less Americans against the British than Americans against America. For my final question, uh, when this is broadcast, there will be a Showtime miniseries going on about John Brown that is based on a James McBride novel. So why don't you explain to our audience what part of that novel uh, is fact and what part isn't? I haven't read the novel and I haven't seen the show. Now, the show just began. So the show was aired, I think, at the beginning of this week. So long after my book was finished. But I deliberately did not read the novel. And here's why. I read lots of stuff when I am preparing to write a book. And I have a fairly sticky memory. I, re I remember stuff that I read, but I don't always remember where I read it. So my fear was, and this is, um, this happens. I don't read, Stephen Harrington wrote a wonderful book on the Battle of the Alamo, the Gates of the, the, the Alamo. It's a novel. And I deliberately didn't read it when I was preparing to write a book on the Battle of the Alamo and the Texas Revolution. Because the better the novel is, the more real it seems to be. And I could just imagine thinking, okay, I remember I read this somewhere about the Battle of the Alamo, or I read this somewhere about John Brown, and it turns out it was in a novel. So I deliberately didn't do it. Uh, I will say this, that I've read reviews of the TV series, and I, I've read passages out of the book. And the impression that I get, at least of, from the reviews of the show, is that John Brown is seen as this rather unhinged character. And it was easy for, it has been easy for people over the years to dismiss John Brown and call him crazy John Brown. And, and people even shortly after John Brown's death would say, so Republicans say crazy John Brown, he's not with us at all. John Brown was not crazy. He was convinced, but if you accepted his premise, that slavery is the greatest evil confronting America, then the steps that he took followed, even if, even if they were beyond the bounds of moral legitimacy. John Brown thought that the war had already begun. And yes, there are casualties, there are civilian casualties in war, but that is a cost one has to pay. But John Brown was anything but crazy. And there was a canniness in John Brown that he knew how to play his supporters. I've 
suggested that he didn't tell them whether he had actually committed those murders in Kansas. And he let them maybe believe what they wanted to believe. He didn't tell them what he was going to use the money that they were giving him for. Because if he told them, well, first of all, they would be they would be compromised if they knew. And in fact, when he did raid Harper's Ferry and he was arrested, the, his major supporters, they all fled because they knew they, they heard from the reports that he had letters from some of his followers. So they thought, oh, my gosh, we're going to be arrested, too. Frederick Douglass took off for Canada. So John, I, so I, I can't speak on the, the fictional representations of John Brown. All right, well, we'll close. Bill, thank you for a wonderful program, uh, this wonderful book, The Zealot, The Emancipator, and The Struggle for American Freedom is a great read and really uh, focuses on, uh, obviously, one of the most important subjects in American history. So thanks, Bill, for all your research and terrific writing to bring this very important part of our history into focus for us. Thank you, Talmadge. It's always a pleasure. H.W. Brands is as passionate a historian as there is. He brings high energy to his subjects like no one else. You can find Bill Brands' new book wherever books are sold. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. And you can also find them on my website, TalmageBoston.com. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, You can't hit the ball with the bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.